<clears throat> Excuse me. All right, good morning. If you would, go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews. We are uh, going to do a little review this morning, and depending on how that goes as to uh, what all we accomplished this morning, I guess. But um, So Hebrews. Um, also, perhaps, I mean, if you have questions along the way, like this morning, as we're reviewing and things like that, it'd be a good time to uh, ask questions if you have some, um, and we'll just see what we can uh, do with any of those, maybe. But uh, anyway, we'll have a word of prayer to start with this morning, and uh, we're not going to read necessarily one passage yet, but uh, we're going to, again, do some review because there's some uh, things I want you to... Uh, the way I'm approaching... This uh, teaching of the book of Hebrews here is just trying to give you, uh, my goal is that when this is done, that you'll have an understanding of the book as a whole. I mean, and of course, you know, a picture of it as, you know, like the keywords and so on that we've been talking about, but um, that you'll be able to just see it, think through it. I mean, obviously, if we were to, if we were to, examine every detail in the book as we go, it would take a very long time to get through the book, okay? So my goal is that, you know, you have just a, an overall understanding of the book, what it's presenting, what it's teaching, and so on, and you can kind of think through it. Um, and then hopefully, uh, obviously, as you desire and have time, you can, you can dig as deep as you want and so on in, uh, in the Word of God, and I encourage you to do that. Um, but Hebrews is a wonderful book. It's a unique book. Uh, it's really all about the Lord Jesus. Now, that could be said of other books of the Bible and even really the Bible as a whole, of course. But Hebrews does have a very unique angle and look at uh, the Lord Jesus. And so it's a, it's a special book in that way. Uh, and I, I found this to be true. Any book of the Bible that I might be particularly studying at the time, in some ways, is my favorite book of the Bible. I mean, you know, it's just the way it is. You, you kind of get absorbed in it. But Hebrews, Hebrews uh, is one of those very special books, even when I'm not studying it, I guess you could say. <laughs> but uh, it's, a, it's a special book. So, all right, Hebrews. We're going we're gonna to have a word of prayer, then we're going to jump in to review here. So put your, you know, your memory Get your memory cards out or whatever and put your thinking caps on, whatever, uh, and we'll, we'll go through that. All right, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this time together. And as we consider uh, the book of Hebrews, which, of course, is all about the Lord Jesus and just demonstrating how he is superior to all, we pray that you would uh, help us to have, number one, a better uh, understanding of your word. And, uh, and an understanding of the book of Hebrews as it presents Christ, uh, but then secondly, a better understanding of the Lord Jesus himself, uh, and then that that, that would uh, draw us to uh, a, a deeper uh, devotion to him and a love for him, 
appreciation for him and service for him. And uh, Lord, again, as we've uh, mentioned as well, if there's happens to be anybody here that uh, is without a real relationship to you through him, we pray that uh, through interacting with your word, your Holy Spirit would convict and uh, you would help any in that condition to see their need and, and to come fully to Christ, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray, amen. All right, book of Hebrews, um, and I think I got the right one. I, I made a new uh, presentation, I guess you would say, for just for the sake of review here. Um, so hopefully I got the right one up, um, but we'll find out soon. Uh, Hebrews, all right, um, let me back up. Three key words. <laughs> I got to get close and look like that to see what's coming up, but anyway. Three key words that, again, you can hang all, everything in the book of Hebrews on these three words, all right? Uh, and obviously, there's details under these and so on, but if you think about Hebrews, if you think about these three words, you can think about the book, all right, and just start kind of filling in in your own mind. But uh, I sort of gave it away, and then my wife just said it, but the person, all right? Now, what's that, what, what does that have to do with? All right, it's a word, person, but we're talking about the superior person of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And the second word, uh, second word, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm not great at this here. Uh, second word is priesthood, and of course they all begin with P. Alliteration sometimes helps remember things, sometimes it may not, but, uh, but person, priesthood, and uh, the superior priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this is fitting when you think about the overall idea of the book. And uh, there's obviously a Jewish flavor to the book. It relies much on the Old Testament, pictures and quotations, well over 100 quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. I mean, that's, that's quite saturated. All right, person, priesthood, what's the third P? I haven't put it up there yet, so. Principle, and... and uh, and that we're talking about the principle of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's go back. And in when we think about the person of Christ, that's the first key word that helps us think about the book as a whole. But what parts of the book, chapters, describe the person, the superior person of Christ? All right, chapters 1 through 4. Again, uh, you, you know, and as you get a bigger outline, a more full outline, you get down more to the nitty-gritty of what's what in it. But again, thinking about the book of Hebrews, first four chapters are about the person of Christ, okay? And, yeah, okay, so his priesthood, second P, second section of the book of Hebrews, anybody remember? Now, we haven't covered these yet, so I'll, I'll give you that uh, there. We haven't talked about these chapters yet, but what chapters talk about the priesthood, present the superior priesthood of Christ. All right, the first one ought to be easy, yeah, 5, 5 through 10, all right? And again, you know, the cutoff and change of these can be argued on specific verses, but chapters 5 through 10, the principle then ought to be pretty easy by just matter of deduction, all right? Uh, chapters 11 through 13, all right? So, 
Now, when we talk about the person of Christ, first four chapters, again, I want to spend some time reviewing this morning before we move on, all right? And then we probably won't come back and review any of the details, just keep in mind the big pictures, but the person of Christ, his superior person, there's really three areas, three more words, right? Areas of argument that the writer of Hebrews, whether it was Paul or whoever, but under, obviously, the instruction of the Lord, that they wrote about in presenting his superior person. Anybody remember what those three words are? Different letters. First one starts with a D. His deity, all right? The deity of Christ, and that's primarily the subject of chapter 1. Starts there, which is... If you, want to, if you think about it, that's normal for the biblical presentation of the person of Christ, and it's reasonable. I mean, it makes sense, okay? Because again, I mean, you think about it. If he's God, that makes all the difference in the world, right? He is not a mere man. Now, he, his, his, I forget how I put these under here. All right, yeah. All right, so now the next word, basically chapter 2 is about this. What would that word be? First letter is H. His humanity, all right? His deity, his humanity. Again, makes sense. It's a logical flow here. Now, the third, which is basically chapters 3 and 4, um, you might have to think a little bit more about this, but it makes sense, again, in the presentation of his personhood, all right? Because he's God and he's man, and as Hebrews 2 demonstrates, and we're going to see at, at the close of chapter 4, it, it puts a big exclamation point on this matter. His humanity, he's the perfect man, right? He is without sin. He was completely, and the next word is fills in that blank. He was completely, begins with an F, faithful, all right? Chapter 3 and 4 are, are, again, with uh, honing in on the idea of faithfulness. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can it be said of him that he was completely faithful in everything that God sent him to do. Every other example in the Bible had some kind of, fail, of, of a man sent by God to do something, had some kind of example of at least, we would have to say, a shortcoming, if not all-out failure, right? Uh, only the Lord Jesus Christ was 101,000% faithful to his mission given to him by God, all right? And so, uh, so we're going to go back now. So you got person, priesthood, and principle, and then thinking about his person, his, the person of Christ, those first four chapters Three words again, what are they? They're not on the screen right now, I don't think. So, his deity, his humanity, and his faithfulness. Again, so that helps you fill in a little bit more of that first section. All right? And so, in thinking about the superior person of Christ, let's just review with a little bit more detail than what we just did here. All right? His Christ is superior in his person because of his deity. That's chapter 1. There were several words under that that could be key words, all right? Uh, first of all, 
only Christ could fully reveal God. I mean, God gave revelation. He gave messages to prophets, even to angels to give to man at times, but in, in parts and pieces and bits and so on throughout the Old Testament. But when Christ came, he fully revealed God. And he's the only one that could do that because he is God, all right? And he's man, but he is God, all right? So he's superior in his revelation. Because of his deity, he's superior in his revelation. He's superior in his relationship. Remember, and again, the argument is showing that he's superior, right? He's better. And in those verses in chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, the idea is he is the son. That's where that idea starts to come out in the book of Hebrews, right? He is the Son, and that's special. Nobody else has the relationship to God, God the Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ does. Yes, like today, every Christian is a child of God, right? And uh, in the New Testament, generally in, in our King James Bible, usually the word son is used, but it's Sons, plural, were sons of God, were children. And the word son there, by the way, is not necessarily restricted biologically to male. It's, it's a generic term, generally, that means children of God. We're his, we're his offspring, his heirs, so on like that. All right, we're his children, but only Christ is the only begotten Son of God. He's the one that in the Old Testament is begun to be revealed as the Son. Remember in Psalm 2, and that's... One of the reasons why I, I had, have gained such an appreciation for the Psalms is there's so much emphasis in the Psalms on the Lord Jesus Christ in reality. Psalm 2, uh, that, that statement, in fact, we'll see that at, if we get into chapter 5 again, we'll see that where you know, God said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. It's a, it's a messianic uh, prophecy there, all right? Uh, but he's superior in his relationship, he's superior in his reign. Uh, and also in his relationship, the idea of worship comes out there. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, it demonstrates that Christ is worthy of our worship. The angels aren't, all right? Uh, the prophets were limited in their ability to communicate God's truth. Christ fully revealed it. But uh, compared to the angels, Christ is the Son. Angels are ministers, they're, they're ministering spirits, but he's the son. They worship him. I mean, think about this. Even from the, uh, how, was, how was Christ's birth announced to this world the night it happened? Angels. In fact, there in Luke 2, you know, it says an angel got the shepherd's attention. But then it says there was a host, a heavenly host. I mean, can you imagine? I, I mean, my mind kind of goes on these, you know, sprees of just trying to imagine these pictures. I mean, but being in, in, in the shepherds were abiding in the field at night, it says, and an angel appeared. Then it says a heavenly host. I mean, wow. <laughs> I mean, maybe they would have had a heart attack had they seen the heavenly host to begin with. So God, you know, get, you know takes it in steps there. I don't know. But, uh, but every time somebody in the Bible sees an angel, by the way, it seems like the first words out of the angel's mouth are, fear not. I mean, angels aren't these little, you know, naked babies with little bows and arrows flying around. I mean, they obviously, <laughs> they obviously are 
fearful look. I mean, you know, I'm not saying they're, they're gross looking or anything, but I mean, obviously they can, they can look like men. Uh, that's how oftentimes they appear. But the, the point being is there's, there's obviously a fearful, majestic appearance to these beings because they often have to tell the people that see them, don't be afraid. I'm here to give you a message from God. And the birth of Christ was announced with angels. And what, and what did they do? They worshipped him. I mean, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. I mean, they were worshiping him from there on, all right? Uh, and they did in heaven before that as well. But then you get into chapter 2, which r- the word in chapter 2, key word is humanity. But first we see a warning passage, the first of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And this is the shortest one of the five by the way, it's just kind of a quick insertion there uh, that really the point is, okay, he's just, he's just demonstrated that Christ is superior in his person because he's the Son of God. He's God, right? He's deity. But then it's like he stops and pauses. You know what? In the Old Testament, people, people face judgment for not listening to the word of God given to them by angels, How much more serious is it if we don't listen to God's word given to us by his son? I mean, that, you know, again, the point of these passages is to get people's attention, to get them to stop and realize how serious this matter is. And that is one of the big overarching uh, communications in the book of Hebrews is that this salvation that's in Christ is extremely serious. It's nothing to take lightly. It's nothing to toy around with. It's serious. The benefits of believing Him are wonderful. The consequences of not believing Him are terrible. It's a serious matter. All right, so it's just, it's just kind of like, stop and get this, people. That's the idea. All right, then he goes on. All right, so disobeying God's message through His Son is serious. And then in chapter 2, the, the argument continues about his person, but, but focusing on his humanity, all right? And, and it's interesting what is talked about in Hebrews 2. In my mind, I, I, I could think that the writer might introduce a number of things here, but it really is limited. But, but again, keep in mind the context, the historical setting and everything of this writing. I mean, the Jews didn't argue that Jesus wasn't a real man. Their hiccup, if I can put it that way, was his claim to be God. I mean, that's why the Jewish leaders got mad. And at his, at his mockery of a trial, do you remember? That's, that's what, you know, when Caiaphas finally uh, heard Jesus say, you know, he said, Thou hast said, and the idea of that, he's, Jesus is agreeing to what he said. You said it. All right, when he said, Are you the Son of God? I mean, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that's basically what he asked him. And Jesus said, you said it. Yeah. And that, I mean, it was like, ah, you heard him blasphemy and all this stuff. Well, Hebrews is demonstrating that is the case. I mean, again, because the focus of, of who it's written to. All right. So Christ is superior because of his humanity. There's two keys that the writer of Hebrews brings in here about Jesus' humanity. And the idea is not so much, again, arguing that, you know, he has to be human. 
Obviously, he was. He is human since he became a man. Now, he's not always been human. Remember, the overarching uh, presentation of who Jesus is in the Bible, he's always God. He's, uh, there's never been a time when he hasn't been God, but there was a time when he became man. And he did that for specific reasons. Because without becoming a man, there were certain things that he could not do. Now, that might sound weird to think about, but God can't die. All right? So to die as, as the part in salvation that Jesus accomplished, he had to become a man in order to do that. All right? But, but think of this. The two things that uh, Hebrews chapter 2, does anybody remember what those two are? Has to do with his creation. With with in creation, God gave man what? God gave man dominion over his creation. God put Adam in a garden as a steward. In other words, Adam's responsibility was to manage the creation of God. I mean, and man before Adam sinned, man had dominion, rightful dominion over creation. Creation was subject to man. Man was the boss, if, if you can say it that way. Obviously, God was over him, but I mean, man was responsible for creation. He had dominion of it. But when Adam sinned, that changed, all right? And so, uh, okay, I know what I'm doing here, I think. Right? <laughs> It'll continue when I get to the next slide here. All right, he's superior because of his humanity, and he, he had to become a man. Again, the two arguments in Hebrews 2 are this. He had to become a man so that he could recover man's dominion over creation. As a man, Christ did what Adam failed to do. He was completely obedient to God. And you'll see Psalm 8 is quoted in chapter 2 and so on. But again, referring to the fact that God gave man a specific position. Adam failed to live up to that, but Christ didn't. And Christ... Jesus has recovered man's dominion over creation, and he will, he's the one that has the right, by the way, not necessarily like you and I, but he will exercise that right on this earth one day during the millennial reign and so on, all right? He recovered man's forfeited dominion. He reconciled man's relationship with God. Now, that, that, that's what everybody thinks about is when, why Jesus came. I mean, really, you, there's numerous other reasons why Jesus became a man and came to this earth and so on that are presented in the Bible. This probably is, is obviously the biggest reason, the most understood reason. He, reckon, he came to reconcile man's relationship to God. In order to do that, he had to become a man and he had to do certain things. He had to come and he had to live perfectly to demonstrate that he was qualified to do that. All right? And then he also had to die as part of that. He came and died, and I put a thing on there a little ahead of time, but he came to die to provide a way that God could, he shed his blood, and, and by the way, that's what the rest of the book of Hebrews is about, okay, when we talk about his priesthood, what all he did in that, all right? But he came and he, he provided a way that God could save sinners and, still, and God still be just and righteous, and holy, and uncompromised. God doesn't fudge anything. 
Every sin that's ever been committed from Adam on has to be dealt with somehow or another. That's the point. And only through what Jesus has done can sin be justly dealt with and sinners be forgiven and God still be just. That is so, so important to get and understand. He had to do things in order for that to be, Jesus had to do things in order for that to be the case. I mean, God couldn't just, you know, lift the rug and sweep sin under the rug. He would be, he would be, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word to use here, but he would, he would be going against his character in doing that. He can't do that. You realize God, you know, people say, can God do anything? God is all-powerful. He can do anything except for anything that goes against his character. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. He cannot, you know, uh, he cannot make himself unrighteous. He is, he is totally perfect, righteous, and he can save lost sinners and still be just and righteous and holy because Jesus has fully satisfied the demands of his wrath over sin. Jesus experienced all God's wrath that we deserve, that our sins deserve, in himself when he was on the cross. I mean, I, I can't necessarily explain to you this is, you know, exactly how that happened, but that's what the Bible teaches and that's what happened. But Jesus had to become a man in order to do that. He took man's place as a man. All right. Um, chapter 2. All right. Uh, Christ is superior as well because of his faithfulness. His deity, his humanity, and his faithfulness. Now, again, you'll see, I mean, if you stop and think about this, you'll see kind of a progression here in the argument and how it's kind of getting more and more focused Okay, and coming to the point here as, it tra- as chapter 4 then transitions, we're not quite there yet, but as it transitions into chapter 5, you'll see then, okay, then it's focusing on what Jesus did as our high priest, okay? But Christ is superior because of his faithfulness. The Lord Jesus was completely faithful in fulfilling his mission. And the first part of chapter 3 just basically gets it, you know, consider Jesus, think about it, is the idea. And it says he was the apostle and high priest of our profession, all right? And then there's a comparison of Jesus and Moses. Moses, again, would have been one of those Old Testament figures. In fact, maybe perhaps more than any other Old Testament figure that was, you know, the one that the Jewish people would have looked at. He's the one that God used to give them the law and, uh, I mean, just... Uh, and, and initiate so many things that are Jewish. I mean, Abraham, you know, God started circumcision, so on with Abraham, but with Moses, I mean, just almost everything else. Fill in the blanks, you know, uh, with that. And so, but Jesus is superior to Moses because, number one, Moses didn't completely fulfill the mission. He was faithful. I mean, nobody can argue that Moses wasn't a faithful man. But he, he wasn't 100% faithful like Jesus and in that, that, those verses there, it likens Moses to what? A servant in God's house, but it says Jesus is the son over the house. Big difference. 
Big difference in the two. All right? And then the, the second warning passage, which we were focusing on, uh, I guess, really the last two weeks, but which in the, again, the, the flow, in a way it stops. It's, it's, you know, just saying, listen, this is serious. Take this seriously and so on. But it, it does fit into the argument as well because it, it really is the idea of consider the rest that Jesus can provide, that Jesus gives, that God gives in Jesus. And then it, the, the last three verses there of chapter 4 focus on that we need, we, because of all this stuff, everything that's been in the first four chapters, we can have confidence in Jesus as our high priest. That, that's really what it's about. And that transitions then into the next six chapters talking about focusing in a lot more detail on that priesthood. Okay? And so um, that's the transition. That second warning passage, keep in mind. Again, in those warning passages, not, not so much the first one, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that real short one. Not so much that one, but in chapter 3 and 4, this, this, this second warning passage, the next one that we're going to see in chapters 5 and 6, really the end of chapter 5, end of chapter 6, in that one particularly as well, and uh, really the, the, the two remaining in chapter 10 and chapter 12, but particularly the ones in 3 and 6 here, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about those passages, and people uh, mistakenly... Uh, see some statements and so on that they conclude means that, okay, we need to be very careful because we could lose our salvation. That's not the point, and that's never said out and out. That's not the argument of those, of those warnings. The warning in chapter 3 and 4 is we need, to, we need to be on guard. We need to take this seriously. We need to be watching because we don't want to miss salvation. That's the whole point. And it talks about the danger of, does, does this have a laser? Ooh, the, constant, the, the danger of unbelief, a hard heart, all right? And, and that's how it starts out, presenting, you know, we need to beware. We need to be careful. Don't let our hearts get hard through unbelief. And the whole emphasis, again, it goes back to the Old Testament, uses Israel as an example. Those that perished in the wilderness, they did so. Why? Because of unbelief. It wasn't that they believed God when they left Egypt and then they got in the wilderness and just got into a condition of not believing God. No, they never really believed God. They were riding along with others that did, but... They didn't, and that's the whole point. It's alluding back to that, saying, don't be like them and miss this because of unbelief, all right? And then the, the chapter 3 part, the chapter 4 part, focuses on the consequence, which is missing God's rest or missing salvation. It's not a matter of losing salvation. It's a matter of missing salvation because of unbelief. Now, again, faith, I mean, I, I don't know. I've thought about this this morning. It might be a good idea sometime here to stop and just talk about, okay, what is saving faith? Look at various places in the Bible. Because the point is, a lot of people have a misunderstanding about what faith is. All right? And, and people throw out the word, well, we're saved through faith. 
Yes. But you realize faith is probably a lot more than what a lot of people think. I mean, a lot of people, again, portray the, the idea that salvation, as long as you, as long as you agree to a, a few certain things and, and then particularly pray a prayer or something like that, you're saved. You know, that's faith. That's not faith, according to the Bible. All right? Because the Bible's presentation of faith always presents faith as having certain results. And if those results aren't present, it's not faith. In fact, even in chapter 5, you can see, we'll get there, uh, the word obey is used all right, to describe what faith is. All right? Now again, that doesn't mean saving faith is that we obey a list of things in order to be saved. That would be works, all right? But faith results in obedience. That's the point, all right? But again, trying, trying to view, review here, all right? This, this warning passage is serious. And again, it's often misunderstood, but it's a serious, serious thing. And you can see over and over again, the references here, the idea is beware lest we miss it, okay? That's, uh, that's the point here. And... As, as he gets down to the close of this, all right, um, verse 11, all right, let us, in chapter 4, by the way, sorry, 4.11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Now, again, some people might stop and think, okay, does that mean we're, we labor to be saved? No, we're laboring to enter salvation. And again, it's not a matter of your working, but the idea, and that's why we stopped last time and went back and looked at a number of passages that Jesus himself uh, spoke things that he said, you know, the, the, he compared salvation to a, or how, how, how do I, he compares having salvation, getting salvation as entering through a, a narrow gate. He's, and he even said that it was hard to find, difficult to find. Now, for the person seeking it, it's easy to find. It's easy to see. The toil, the struggle is, there are things that a person has to, and I, I hesitate wording it this way, but hopefully, I mean, you, you get what I'm saying, that a person has to do in order to be saved. In other words, a person, the Bible describes every saved person as someone who has humbled himself before God. And by the way, in, the, in those statements, in particularly Matthew's gospel by Jesus, about uh, coming to him as a little child, that doesn't mean you have to be a child, but that means you've got to have some humility. You've got to humble yourself. In other words, you're this person who's accomplished this in life, but you've got to put yourself in a child's position in order to have the right attitude to come to him. I mean, you're going to look at yourself as lowly, as humble. And by the way, that's the result of the Holy Spirit convicting. And again, I could, I could give you an example from my experience, and, and others could, but I mean, that doesn't, you know, there's danger in that because then everybody's trying to compare their experience with this, and, and, and everybody's getting to salvation is different than everybody else's because everybody's different salvation 
is the same, exactly the same for everybody. All right? It's coming to a point of faith in Christ. And I've, I've likened, tried to use the illustration several times, likened it, you know, to coming into this building. Although this building is not salvation, let me be clear, okay? Uh, there's no salvation in this building other than that those that are in here, right, and are saved. But it's like coming to a building. I mean, many people, they come... They admire it from the outside. They, I mean, they do all kinds of things, but they never come, they never step, they never cross that threshold into salvation. I mean, and that's what Hebrews is warning about. People that they saw this, they did this, they're part of this, and for whatever reason, they're, they're hanging in there, but they're not saved because they've never had that heart surrender to him in genuine faith out of a repentant heart, having been convicted of... The, I mean, you know, there's a lot of words and things that we could say, but it's a point when a person has a heart change and they see themselves differently, they see God, Jesus differently, they see sin differently. Now, that doesn't mean through the rest of your Christian life, after salvation, you never take sin for granted and things of that sort. But there's a point when all of that changes in your heart. And you lay yourself at his mercy. I mean, again, there's so many different words. And, and that's the idea, by the way, of the last verses of chapter 4. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. We can't do it on our own. That's why it's a throne of grace, by the way. Grace is God helping us. He is, it's what he's done for us, what he's provided. Faith is our receiving it. It's welcoming it to us. But we have to get there and realize it is only of his grace. It's not of me. It's not of you. If it were up to us and if it was hinged upon us, none of us would be saved. It's only Christ. Okay, and... That's what the idea of the warning passages here are. And, and each one of these are slightly different, but they're all really emphasizing the same thing. All right? Don't miss salvation for whatever reason. Some people know all about it, but they just, they're too proud. Um, anyway. So that's the warning. Let's see here. Yes, confidence in Jesus' priesthood is what, again, the, the last few verses of chapter 4 is, is emphasizing here. So when you get down, when you think about this in its context, again, this warning, as it ends, it says in verse 11, let us therefore labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Those Israelites, other people probably would have thought they were genuinely believers. But there was a time when it became evident that they weren't, all right? And God drew the line, the you know, they, they had to in, get the con consequences of that. But the point being is, he's saying, take it seriously, let's, let's labor, make sure we're not in unbelief. And then verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful. Again, a verse that we often quote for various reasons, and there's some universal principles in this verse, obviously, okay? But uh, the, for the word of God, it's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Now, that's obviously extremely sharp, okay? 
But the point being, you know, the only person that really sees and can discern between all those things is who? It's God, right? He's the one. That's the point. And then uh, he's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of art. He's the one that knows it all. He's the one who knows who's saved, who's not, etc. That doesn't mean that you can't. If you're saved, you can know it, yes. All right, and then verse 13, neither is there any creature that's not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, again, just stressing, God sees it all. He knows it all. He's the judge, okay? And that's the point, partly with this, is it's not about impressing anybody else. It's he's the one who's going to judge you, not Brother Andy or, I mean, you know, He's the one. God is. The Lord Jesus. And He's the one that we need to make sure that we have that relationship with. Not anybody else. All right? And then picking back up as the, as the, the, the warning, the, the severe issue here is, is closing, getting back to the, to the main argument of the book. He says in verse 14, seeing then, all right, I mean, just based on everything he said, seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, <clears throat> Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have, now notice, let's hold it fast because, that's the idea of four here in verse 15, because we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. Now notice the last three words of verse 15. What are they? Yet without sin. So this is like nailing the, co the, you know, the coffin shut on the argument about his humanity. He's a human. He's God. He's humanity. He's been totally faithful. And that's all wrapped up in that statement, yet without sin. He's... Totally faithful. There's not any sin in him. He's never committed a sin. He won't sin, okay? You can count 100% on him. So therefore, he says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right, he's the one that gives grace in this, if you want to say, this laboring in order to, to come to salvation, He's the one that provides the grace, right? It's a throne of grace that's available. We just have to look to him and trust him, and he'll provide what's necessary and needed for everything, all right? Now, there's universal truth there, if you want to say as well, principles for us in our Christian lives. Obviously, in our times of need, we should go to him. I mean, okay? But in its context, again, the emphasis of those verses is coming to Christ for salvation, all right, that's, that's the main emphasis in its context. Let us, therefore, all of this, because he's God, he's the perfect man who's the only one that's been faithful and the only one that can reconcile us back to God, all right, because of all that, we, got it, we need to come boldly to him. That's the idea, all right? And so that's, in a nutshell maybe, the first four chapters of the book of Hebrews, all right? So, and we got like five minutes here, uh, which we, we could stop now if we need to, but does anybody have any questions or anything about 
those first four chapters before we move on. Not that I got all the answers or anything, but um, anything that uh, Lord lays on your heart about those as far as uh, adding to what we've said. Probably didn't give you a whole lot of warning there, but anyway, yep. For them. Well, by principle, there's a principle there for us in prayer, okay? Certainly. And it's just like, it's interesting to me in thinking about this, this idea, there's a lot of verses that we do this with, and many of them are in Hebrews. Many of them are in Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 29. Uh, and as it's pointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. All right? I mean, no, that's not the right. 927. Anyway, but... The context of that is emphasizing that Christ died once. If you look at the context of that verse, that's what it's talking about. But it is true, by the way, that there are two things that every person can count on. Death and judgment. I mean, some way or another, everybody has to face death. Somehow or another, everybody will answer to God in judgment. Now, for the saved person, that answering to God in judgment is far different than the unsaved person. But there's still the principles there, right? So there, there's, you know, there is a universal principle in that, right? When we get the numbers and all the sacrifices and all that stuff, you know, wow. Just the simplicity, the depth, but the simplicity of, like, who did all that one who's dead. Just interesting to see Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't know that there's any one Old Testament picture that, fully, that obviously fully pictures Christ, but he fulfills them all. Uh, but, yeah. Something I was looking at, which came out this morning as you were teaching, that, and, I, and of course I'm teaching back in the wilderness, and, and there's a lot of you know, going back and forth of similar things. And the statement that the people made was, all that you have said we will do. But Christ is the only one that said that all he has said, he did. And he was perfect. He was without sin. He's the one who's the sacrifice. I thought that was interesting. Just that, that terminology of the people. And obviously, it's going to be proven they're not it. Excuse me. Yep. Yeah, a lot of people claim different things, but only Christ has fulfilled it. And then we see in the next number of chapters, anybody else? Before I close this out. But the next several chapters now, now this transitions into talking about Christ as our high priest and all that's involved in that, all right? And it's interesting because the chapter 5 then, look, notice, just, just look at verse 1 of chapter 5. 
for every high priest. Okay, so now it really starts into the, high, the priestly aspect, okay, the priesthood of Christ. And um, uh, that, that past, the, the last three verses of chapter 4 really make the hinge, if you want to say, to flip from talking about his person to his priesthood. And focusing on his priesthood, there's five aspects really that come out. And, and I guess you could say four mainly. The, the first one here in chapter 5, the first 10 verses, and then it gets into a warning passage already. But the first one here kind of lays out just a general summary or what I'll call in my outline a synopsis of his priesthood. Then you're going to see in, uh, in chapter 7 that it talks about the source of his priesthood. In other words, going back, showing that he's a priest, not after the order of Aaron, like all the other, like the Jewish priests, but he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And it talks in chapter 7 about how that is superior to Aaron's priesthood for several reasons. It predates it, first of all, and a lot of other reasons. Anyway, we'll talk about that. And then chapter 8 focuses on for alliteration's sake, I call it the script of his priesthood, but really it focuses on the covenant involved in his priesthood versus the old covenant. All right, And then in chapter 9, focuses on the sanctuary of his priesthood. In other words, uh, Christ's priestly work takes place in the real tabernacle in heaven, not the mere picture of that tabernacle that was here on earth but the real tabernacle. And then chapter 10 talks, focuses on the sacrifice of his priesthood, which obviously is an amazing subject just in itself. But his, he's, he's, he's the sacrifice, and we often associate that with him. But the book of Hebrews presents the fact that he not only was the sacrifice for our sins, he's the priest that was offering that sacrifice to God as well. So anyway, wonderful things to come in the book of Hebrews, and we'll, we'll probably spend a little bit more time on those things than we, you know, we, because of even over the last year looking at a number of the Psalms, and we talked a lot about the person of Christ and so on. We kind of just hurried through a lot of things in chapters 1 and 2, but uh, the next chapters are more unique, you might say, and so we'll focus a little bit more specifically on details and content of that. So let's go ahead and pray and then uh, we'll be done here. Thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus. And thank you that, again, we can have a relationship to you through him because of who he is and what he's done and the fact that he's completely done it. He's, he's, he's totally faithful. He is the only high priest we can count on. And I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to, again, focus on him and that and love you and please you as we ought. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.